So the reading this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 13, moving on from uh, to the third of our studies in this term, and uh, verses 18 to 35. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow it in your Bibles. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 27 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. At that time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that old fox. I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have, brought, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I will... <clears throat> I will tell you, I, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks for that reading. I guess I can leave out the other half now. <laughs> it's all been said. Oh, well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you all here. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. We've spent two weeks now in our latest series called Radical slowing down to look at Jesus' actions and teaching in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13 to 16, we've seen that Jesus' demands are radical. In our first week, we saw that repentance was already the regular practice of the people that Jesus was speaking to. 
And yet Jesus demanded repentance of a different kind. Otherwise, like a fruitless tree, they were going to be cut down. Last week, we saw that Jesus' actions brought into question long-established understandings and expectations. Jesus gave radical freedom, releasing this woman who'd been bound by Satan for 18 long years. But his actions were provocative in that they led the synagogue leader to question Jesus' seemingly casual, casual ignorance of the law. But Jesus wasn't the lawbreaker. The synagogue leader's heartless response was exposed. And we were challenged to ask, are we willing to accept Jesus' new interpretation of what it means to obey God? Or are we stuck fulfilling traditions? Jesus is causing a shake-up. And so as we begin again this morning, let's pray, recognising again our dependence upon God, uh, to him, to ask him to enable us to respond radically to the changes that he's expecting of us. Will you join with me? Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us to meet together in this place. We thank you for the comfort that we have, for the ones around us who know you and love you, for your word in a language that we can easily understand. And yet we don't want to take for granted uh, that reality that we can't understand this unless you enable us. And so we ask again this morning, would you work in us by your spirit, enable us to not only know what you're saying, but give us your grace to respond to it as we should. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is 1975. A university dropout and his friend, both in their early 20s, tell you that they're on to the next big thing. It's an invention which they're confident should probably be working pretty soon now. Intrigued rather than convinced by such a positive line, you ask to look at what they're creating. They lead you out of the house, out the back into the garage. Inside, there's one of those newfangled personal computers that you heard about on the news the other night. I think they call it a microcomputer. It takes up a whole desk, and it, and it looks much like a typewriter with a, a little screen on the top of it. It's already switched on, and there are random numbers and letters appearing on a, on a tiny little screen. With clearly evident excitement, they say that when they get their invention working, it's going to revolutionise the world. And that's when they make their proposal. They want you to invest $28,000 to become a silent partner in their new company. Now, in case you're not aware, I had to go back and have a look at the figures. Back in 1975, $28,000 was enough to buy the average house in Sydney. And so it's decision time. Would you trust what is pretty much a pair of young, naive kids, one at university dropout, typing letters on a screen to make something you've never even heard of that they call software? Accept or reject? I know what I would have done. Investing can be a risky business. We only know in hindsight if something will actually become the next big thing. The inventor can believe in something. They can sink hours of effort and money into developing their product, even do brilliant marketing. But whether or not it takes off 
is at the mercy of forces outside of our control. And so my guess is that if we had have met university dropout Bill Gates and his friend Paul Allen back in 1975 working away in that garage, we almost certainly would have laughed at them and wondered what on earth they were doing wasting all this time. It's incredibly unlikely that any of us would have bet a house on it. But imagine how you would feel now, just 45 years later, knowing that you turned your back on one-third ownership in Microsoft because it was too risky. You could now be the owner of an investment property in Sydney worth a million dollars, not something to laugh at. But having invested exactly the same amount of money, you could now have a one-third share in a trillion-dollar international company. That's one with 12 zeros after it. A million million US dollars. You could literally own a number of Sydney suburbs. That's investing at its best, giving up something now to get something worth much more in the future. And an outcome like Microsoft is every investor's dream. While I doubt that too many financial advisors are going to start advertising the kingdom of God as the next big thing, in this passage, that is exactly what Jesus is claiming. So this morning's question is, have we accepted Jesus' offer to enter the kingdom of God? Have you accepted his offer? We're going to have a look at that question by trying to answer, what is the kingdom? The projected growth of the kingdom in verses 18 to 21, the urgent need to enter the kingdom, verses 22 to 30, and then finally, the rebellious capital of the kingdom, verses 31 to 35. But to understand what Jesus is asking us to invest in, we first need to briefly explore this term, the kingdom of God. What, what is it? What is the kingdom? Well, while the phrase, the kingdom of God, first appears only in the New Testament, the concept was established over centuries throughout the Old Testament. The kingdom of God refers to a combination of things all related to God's rule. It's how God rules. Sometimes he rules by speaking. Think Adam and Eve in the garden. He tells them what they can and can't eat. At other times, he rules through written commands. Think the Ten Commandments. He even rules through human representatives like King David, uh, Moses or Joshua. But the kingdom of God is also where God reigns. In one sense, that's absolutely everywhere. He creates the universe by his speaking. And yet, we read that he also chooses certain places like Eden, the promised land and the temple to be his special place to rule over and to be present in. In still yet another sense, the kingdom of God is who God rules over. It starts with the first human couple. It expands to include the families of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Eventually it's a nation called Israel. God rules over everyone. But this special relationship with his specially chosen people, the, the citizens of the kingdom of God, is why the Bible initially makes this distinction between Jews, those who are in the kingdom of God, those who are citizens, and those who are on the outside, Gentiles, all of us who are not Jews. Even having only glanced at the who, where, and how of God's rule, 
it's obvious that Jesus could use the term kingdom of God and everybody listening to him would have instinctively known that he was claiming the authority to declare how people must live in order to submit to God's rule. We can summarise that to be in the kingdom of God is to live with God as king. But in Jesus' day, this situation was further complicated, leading to our second part. Ever since God had kicked Israel, the kingdom of God, out of the promised land and sent them to Babylon, they had been ruled over by successive empires. While in Jesus' day, they were back in the promised land, back in the kingdom of God, Israel was still ruled over by their enemy. The kingdom of God, if you could even call it that, was a small and relatively insignificant country within the all-conquering Roman Empire. And so every Jew who was there listening to Jesus would have agreed with the first part of Jesus' claim, that the kingdom of God is tiny like a mustard seed, too right, Jesus. It's virtually invisible like yeast mixed into flour, spot on. Its smallness, its being subjected to the humiliating bondage of yet another nation, appeared to be evidence that God's plan was failing. And yet, like someone claiming to be on to the next big thing, in these two punchy parables, in verses 18 to 21, Jesus says that the kingdom of God may not look like much now, but the ending is going to be magnificent. Mustard seeds are tiny. They, they look like powder. And yet they grow into trees. A I think there's a tree coming up. There it is. Sorry, it's a bit distorted, isn't it? Um, a tiny amount of yeast is added into flour and it, and it blends in. Virtually invisible, it powerfully makes the bread rise far bigger than the uncooked dough. I don't know if there's 27 kilos of flour in that one, but anyway. Um, both of these pictures show an extraordinary outcome current, coming from a very tiny beginning. In the financial terms often associated with investing, Jesus' predicted growth figures are extraordinary. Don't evaluate it by what you can currently see. I tell you, it's going to be huge. And this was great news for those who were struggling under the weight of Roman taxation and military rule, for those who compared their disappointing present with the glorious past that they'd heard about, King David, King Solomon. Jesus was promising that the future of the kingdom of God was something worth investing in, something, in fact, that you couldn't afford to miss out on. But we've got to ask the question, is Jesus just pitching the best-case scenario in the hope of getting some investors on board? Was he being unrealistically optimistic, talking up something that, that wasn't actually making the progress that needed to be? Well, having made this claim of a magnificent thing to come, verse 22 says that Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching on the way to Jerusalem. And while he's doing that, his claim is questioned, introducing our part three. Accepting and living out Jesus' teaching is what enables people to become members of the kingdom, to be on the inside. 
This was already a radical claim. Jesus was a Jew speaking to Jews, telling Jews that they had to make a change in how they were living. But as Jews, they assumed that they were already a part of the kingdom of God. So why was Jesus saying that they had to change in order to enter the kingdom? We'll come back to that question in a minute. Luke also tells us that Jesus teaches on his way to Jerusalem. The mention of the destination may seem insignificant to us, but the significance is that Jerusalem, by Jesus' day, had already long been the capital city of Israel, the location of both the temple and the palace. Jesus is heading to the location where God's king rules from, both in the political and the religious sense. There is no better place to go to make radical claims about the kingdom of God. But as he teaches on his way to the capital, Jesus' claim that the kingdom is going to grow dramatically is questioned by an anonymous follower. Verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are you, uh, sorry, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And I think we've got to ask, what motivated this question? It's stated negatively, implying that the questioner was anticipating the exact opposite outcome to what Jesus has claimed. But perhaps, giving them the benefit of the doubt, it was merely a clarifying question. Maybe they assumed that they were going to be one of the privileged few who was in the kingdom, and they were asking how many others are going to make the cut like they have. Perhaps the question was motivated by more cynical doubt. Jesus has made an extraordinary claim, but given no explanation of how the kingdom is going to end up in that magnificent place. And Israel's present and past both suggested that the exact opposite was the likely outcome. Pilate's treatment of the Galileans at the beginning of this chapter was a case in point the Roman soldiers patrolling their streets, the, the taxes that they were all paying. All the evidence pointed to the conclusion that the kingdom of God was going to remain small. Otherwise, a revolution was needed. And so if this question was motivated by disbelief, we can probably rephrase it as, are you calling us to go to war against the Roman Empire? Now, in the end, we can only guess at what the underlying motivation for the question was. But notice that in verse 24, Jesus, who knows the heart, he knows what people are motivated by, repeats his emphasis on our need to focus on our response. Verse 24, he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Make every effort. Jesus turns the question back on the questioner and, and on the crowd, demanding that they do whatever they can to make sure they're in the kingdom. Very similar to two weeks ago, where not to look out the window, rather we're to look in the mirror. That is, we're not to allow what Jesus' demand means for others to distract us from what Jesus demands for us, what Jesus' demand means for me. The necessary first response to Jesus' words is to reflect on ourselves and ask, 
have I done what's necessary for me to be in the kingdom? And as he puts the responsibility firmly on us, Jesus issues two warnings that reveal that doing what is necessary is going to be difficult. Firstly, make every effort. And secondly, there's a time limit within which to do it. I think that the first warning is probably the one that sounds strangest to us if you've been in church for any period of time. The original word used by Luke at the start of verse 24, translated make every effort, is the basis of our word agonise. This word describes striving and pain, hard work, an athlete pushing themselves to the limit, a mother straining to give birth. It all sounds so contrary to grace. Why would Jesus describe entering the kingdom in these terms? Even just last week, if you were here, we were reminded that there is no other requirement in addition to trusting in Jesus. We're saved by grace. And there is nothing that we can do to pay for or to earn our place in the kingdom. If you did listen to this week's podcast, Deeper, you can go to the website to look it up. If you listen this week, you'll know that any attempt at self-help, at trying to contribute something to our salvation, is stealing the glory that belongs to God. Which is a very big hint that maybe the hardest thing we can ever do is to trust solely in Jesus. It sounds so easy, but it's not in practice. Our, our instinct to contribute shows itself in every part of our lives. When we go to someone's house, first question we ask, what should I bring? If we get a lift, we offer petrol money. We don't want to be a freeloader. And unless we're careful, we will try to contribute to our own salvation. But Jesus says that membership of the kingdom is a gift. Making every effort in the wider context of the gospel means getting rid of every last trace of thinking that we did something that made us deserve being here in the kingdom. Entry to the kingdom is by grace. We don't deserve to be in, but we're invited in, which causes great surprise, and it did, as Jesus said these words. I don't know what your experience was uh, at school when they picked sporting teams. This is something that's still vivid in my memory. Whether you were picked first or you were left till last, my experience was that everyone knew who the good athletes were, who were the, the best friends. And so you could predict the teams quite accurately before either of the captains spoke a word. But unlike our school experience, who is in the kingdom of God and who is out is going to lead to great shock. It's not going to be who everyone thought it was. Verse 29, east and west, north and south. For those who were listening to this, they would have understood straight away that Jesus is talking about people not from here, Gentiles, people from the other nations. And so this is truly yet another radical claim. Jesus is going against centuries of tightly held belief that to be a part of God's people, all you needed was to be a descendant of Abraham. But the basis of their being a member in the kingdom of God was not nationality. Jesus stuns them 
with what in their time would have been a shocking claim that entry to the kingdom is not race-based. It's grace-based. It contradicts everything that they took for granted. But it's also incredibly good news for us. Though Gentiles, we can be a part of the kingdom of God. What was previously impossible, Jesus is already hinting at now, before he goes to the cross, that membership is available. Come and get it, it's free. This is exciting news for us. And yet, immediately we need to recognise that while we might not make the same wrong assumption that our membership of the kingdom is based upon our nationality, do we allow other equally wrong criteria to be the basis for our assurance? Do we think that, well, I'm accepted because I come from a Christian family, because I read my Bible, because I pray or always go to church. God will hear my prayers because I'm faithful and obedient. They are all good things to do, appropriate things to be in light of grace. But if we ever trust in anything other than or in addition to Jesus, it has the same shocking outcome, exclusion from the kingdom. And so even in 2020, we need to hear Jesus' words as the strong warning that they are. Don't assume that you're in the kingdom. Make sure that you accept Jesus' invitation. The second difficulty related to entering the kingdom has to do with time. Jesus says, do everything that you can to pass through the narrow doorway because a time is coming when the door is going to be shut. There's an urgency that demands an immediate response. A limited time offer, a deadline which has no extensions. To many, this may feel like the pushy used car salesman, the dodgy deals done on TV or the pressure selling done over the phone. When I worked at a bike shop when I was at university, uh, people often came in telling me of the deals that they'd been offered at the shop up the road. Inevitably, it was a special offer. But you've got to act today. If you come back next week, the price will have increased 10%. More often than not, what they were being offered was not even good value, which is why the shops resorted to pressure selling. And when Jesus says that the door is closing and there won't be a second chance, it may feel to us like a similar pressure. But this is, Je this is not Jesus' attempt to manipulate it is a statement of fact. Our experience that the offer of free entry to the kingdom, because that offer has always been there, we may assume that the offer will always be there. But the offer of free entry into the kingdom is for a limited time only. And when the door has been shut, no matter what strategy you use, no matter how much you plead, there will be no entry we won't be able to say that we knew Jesus. We won't be able to claim, well, I heard your teaching and I want to respond to it now. Locked out of the kingdom, excluded from the feast, as verse 29 calls it. People will be shocked that all they can do is look longingly from the outside at what they missed out on, at what they are missing out on. God will say that he doesn't even know them. And so it's not surprising 
that there will be great distress, weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 28 calls it, because surprising outsiders are in and those who assume that they were already in are left on the outside. These days, I think the acronym RSVP is being replaced by FOMO, fear of missing out. We wait to the very last minute before we lock in plans, afraid of missing out on a better offer. But Jesus warns us that by not locking in our decision now, it creates the very real danger that we will miss out permanently. We have to trust him, believe that the kingdom will really continue to grow and become great. And that trust is expressed by receiving the offer now. And Jesus' radical demand grates on so many people, both in his own day and in ours. People like the opportunity that comes with sitting on the fence. Often in a group this size, there will be some that remain undecided. You might be here this morning because you're still seeking more information. You're wanting more evidence to to make your decision about whether to follow Jesus or not. It's good, but Jesus doesn't want people to be open to his take on things, who think that his ideas sound plausible. He wants people who've heard his presentation about the kingdom of God, who then put the house on it. They stake their whole lives on it. Have you accepted Jesus' offer of the kingdom or not? This may be your last chance to accept. Don't presume on his patience. Coming on the back of a very intense and surprising warning, verses 31 to 35 at first glance don't appear to be connected and and they are our final section. And yet I believe that the kingdom of God remains the focus of what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God has rightly been interpreted to be politically radical. And as a result, Herod apparently wants to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. The Pharisees, who have already shown their rejection of Jesus back in chapter 6, verse 11, warn Jesus of the danger, but they're probably trying to manipulate a political situation to achieve their own goal of getting Jesus off the scene. He's making trouble for us. Whatever their motivation was, they presume that Jesus will act in self-preservation, just as they would if they were in his shoes. But in a shock for the Pharisees, they're pointing out the danger has the exact opposite effect. Jesus insists that pressing on to Jerusalem is a non-negotiable part of his plan. He is going to do, he's going to keep on doing, exactly what he has been doing, going precisely where he had set out to go. Going somewhere other than Jerusalem is not an option because that would not achieve his goal. It's not his purpose. And at this point, Jesus clarifies what is really going on. He knows what's going on in all of their thinking, in all of their actions. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. 
This analogy of a protective hen contrasts Jesus' desire to gather and protect with the stubborn refusal of God's people to be gathered and protected. It's an extraordinary picture that Jesus has an intense desire, a, a longing for, a love so strong that it can only be compared to a mother's love for her children in danger. His people are oblivious to the danger they're in and so he's doing exactly what's needed to rescue them. Even though they remain in rebellion against him, he still wants them back and their stubborn refusal breaks his heart. Jesus' love for us is really extraordinary. Yet in spite of his desire, and the fact that entry to the kingdom is by grace, people are still knocking back Jesus' offer. Having emphasised in verse 24 that entry to the kingdom takes effort, we might conclude that the limited number of people entering is because of the effort required. But the reality is that the lack of people entering is not because the line at the door is so long or because the opening is so narrow. The problem is that God's people were refusing to go in. You were not willing. Jesus is pointing his finger squarely at the Pharisees. Jerusalem, as the capital city of the kingdom of God, represents those who had been given the clearest opportunity to live for God, to live with God as their king. The leaders who are supposed to guide to guide God's people into living God's ways. But the Pharisees had instead chosen to do things without Jesus. Their choice was a blatant one. And Jesus already knows what their choice will lead to. What initially may look like cryptic comments in verse 35 are a reference to what's going to happen when Jesus finally enters Jerusalem. He's going there for a very specific and very surprising purpose. When he says in verse 35 that you won't see me again, he doesn't mean that he now disappears from their view or hides himself away so they can't find him because in the very next verse, chapter 14, verse 1, the Pharisees are carefully watching Jesus. Now the point is that the Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is. Jesus is doggedly set on going to Jerusalem because he is king of the kingdom. In verse 35, Jesus combines a, a strong judgment from Jeremiah 12 and 22 together with words from Psalm 118. And these words from Psalm 118 are repeated again in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, as Jesus rides a donkey up into Jerusalem at Passover but with the significant change from chapter 13, not blessed is he who comes, but rather blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees refuse to accept that Jesus is the king. And because of their unwillingness, they will eventually kill him for making such an outrageous claim. God had sent prophet after prophet to tell his people to turn to his ways. And while far more than a prophet, Jesus heads to Jerusalem to give the same warning. If you don't turn from your own ways, judgment is coming. But unlike any prophet before him, Jesus was more than a messenger. 
He was steadfastly going to Jerusalem for the very purpose of giving his life to save ours. The shocking thing is that by dying, God will fulfill the plan. It's not to run from death, it's to run to death. It's only with 2020 hindsight that anyone could realise that Jesus' crucifixion was also his enthronement. Only in hindsight can anyone understand that his death was the only means that allow us to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, that had always been Jesus' plan. And so Jesus puts before us all the offer of a lifetime. Turn from your stubborn insistence on ruling your own life. Let me be the king who dies in your place and the kingdom's yours. In a very real sense, the demand that Jesus placed on the crowd at that moment was a momentous one. As I said at the start, only in hindsight do we know if something will actually become the next big thing. Those who first heard Jesus' words had only seen small things that hinted at the truth of Jesus' claim. And yet even so, Jesus demanded them to choose. How much easier is our choice? We've seen that the king does go to Jerusalem and is crucified for his claims. We've heard the witness that he rose from the dead. We've even received the annual reports of the growth of the kingdom for almost two millennia. And yet even for us, Jesus' promise that the kingdom really will be great is ridiculed by our society. And so, as with any other choice, to commit to one thing is to turn our back on another. It's 45 years now since Microsoft began its journey to being the next big thing. It's an investment that many people wish they'd had a chance to get in on the ground floor. Not many companies start so small and become so great. It's nearly 2,000 years since Jesus spoke of the kingdom and offered the next big thing, an investment that's far superior to any other. The offer still stands, but time is limited. Have you accepted Jesus' offer or not? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we think of grace, we think that a strong warning like this doesn't fit, seems incompatible, that you would make such a strong demand to not just invest $28,000, but to commit our whole lives. And yet that is your demand. And Lord, I ask that you would enable us to truly trust in you, to put our money where our mouth is, to actually commit to the kingdom, to to throw our lives away on the one thing that will last into eternity. Enable us to see the lesser investments, the things of this life that won't last forever. And yet you promise a kingdom that starts off tiny and yet will be magnificent. We learn elsewhere that not only will it be magnificent, it'll be eternal. And so we ask that you would enable us to flee, turn our backs on everything that is less important and instead completely trust in you. We pray it in your name. Amen.